Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to tell you about a patient whom we'll call Anne. Anne is 74 years old and presents with aspiration pneumonia and septic shock. She has congestive heart failure, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, pulmonary cachexia, hypertension, and a history of stroke, sepsis, and respiratory failure. She had a G-tube placed about six months ago due to ongoing malnutrition. Since that time, she has been in and out of the hospital with increasing frequency for serious bacterial infections. She has difficulty clearing secretions and great difficulty walking. What do you think about Anne's quality of life? Garbage. Do you say garbage? <laughs> Other thoughts about Anne's quality of life? Can you give any hints about what her preferences were or if this, this type of uh, life experience is consistent with what she wanted for her life given all the things that she's facing? Mm -hmm. Or would that be cheating? Those are great questions. <laughs> I was just looking for kind of an initial, okay. initial response. Seems like a lot of the initial responses were, doesn't sound good, right? Um, okay. I want you to keep this case in mind. We'll return to it. As far as an outline for this talk, I'm going to start by summarizing what studies show about the ability to judge quality of life. I'll review what the AMA Code of Ethics says about quality of life judgments in healthcare decision-making. And then we'll look at what the Catholic tradition says about quality of life judgments. From there, I'd like to try to clarify what I see as a few different meanings of that phrase, quality of life, and then look at some related errors, errors related to quality of life judgments. Lastly, I'll delineate the role of quality of life judgments in medical treatment decision-making. So first, what does studies show about the ability to judge quality of life? Well, in a nutshell, in a nutshell what they show is that Caregivers, professionals, etc., outsiders' judgments about the quality of life of a patient sometimes align and sometimes do not align with a patient's own judgment about his or her quality of life. So, for instance, it's pretty well established by studies that persons without disabilities underestimate the self reported quality of life of persons with disabilities. Along the same lines, there's this really interesting study that shows that healthy person's judgment of the quality of life of ALS patients actually more closely aligned with how they rated their own quality of life. So there seems to be a sort of projection of how one experiences their own quality of life on the lives of these patients who had ALS. The American Medical Association Code of Medical Ethics speaks about quality of life from the perspective of the patient, including when decisions are made by surrogate decision makers. As you can see here, 
the code says that we should take into account the patient's quality of life as experienced by the patient. What does the Catholic tradition say about quality of life? There seems to be some concern in, in Catholic circles that quality of life judgments are maybe inherently unethical, or at least that the language of quality of life shouldn't be used because it's tied up with advocacy for things such as abortion, euthanasia, etc. Let's look though at what teaching documents related to healthcare ethics say about quality of life judgments. The first quote that I have up here is from Pope St. John Paul II's 1995 encyclical Evangelium Vitae. So this is a letter on life issues. And here, Pope St. John Paul II warns against understanding quality of life as, in the highlighted text, primarily or exclusively as economic efficiency, inordinate consumerism, physical beauty, and pleasure, to the neglect of the more profound dimensions interpersonal, spiritual, and religious of existence. So this quote seems to indicate that consideration of quality of life is not inherently problematic, but it must be rightly understood. Namely, it must be understood to include interpersonal, spiritual, and religious dimensions, as well as more physical dimensions. Later in Evangelium Vitae, he writes that the growing attention being paid to quality of life is a welcome sign. So it's clear that he doesn't think consideration of quality of life is inherently problematic. In fact, he specifically says that paying attention to quality of life is a good thing, a welcome sign. The Pontifical Council for Pastoral Assistance to Healthcare Workers, their new, new charter for healthcare workers published most recently in 2016, speaks of the duty of healthcare workers to improve the quality of patients' lives. In a document by the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, that was put out in 2020, Sonaritanus Bonus, this is a letter on end-of-life ethics. It speaks about the wrongful equating of quality of life with the value of life. In the second paragraph here, it affirms the intrinsic value of every human life. And it says that this equating of quality of life with the value of life wrongfully measures quality of life by the possession or lack of particular psychological or physical functions, or sometimes simply by the presence of psychological discomfort. This quote that I have up here, this second paragraph, also quotes directly from Pope St. John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae and his corrective that quality of life must include all the dimensions of a person's life. And then this third quote from Samaritanus Bonus speaks positively of palliative care as having the goal of improving quality of life. The last document from the Catholic tradition that we'll look at is the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Healthcare Services, which is a mouthful, so commonly referred to as the ERDs. 
This is a document put out by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Think of it as essentially a summary and sometimes application of Catholic teaching related to healthcare ethics. The ERDs don't use the phrase quality of life directly, but the ERDs speak about how the well-being of the whole person must be taken into account when considering benefits and burdens of treatments and when making healthcare decisions. We'll say more about benefits and burdens, making healthcare decisions a little later. The ERDs also state that judgments about benefits and burdens are made by the patient. You can see here the second quote, in the judgment of the patient. And so in this way, the ERDs align with the AMA code regarding who judges quality of life or the well-being of the patient. Here's how I think we can put together what we've seen in the studies, the AMA code and the Catholic tradition. First, I think it's important to distinguish between quality of life and what is sometimes called the sanctity of life. The sanctity of life refers to the bedrock principle in the Catholic tradition that the human person has intrinsic worth or inherent value, this intrinsic human dignity, regardless of health, ability, relationships, even consciousness. And given that it's intrinsic or inherent to the human person, human persons have this worth regardless of these things, and it cannot be lessened or taken away. Sanctity of life, I think, combines this commitment to the intrinsic worth of the human person, and then also the principle that it's wrong directly to take innocent human life. To ask the question of this talk, are quality of life judgments ethical? Well, not inherently, I think, as we've seen, but if the judgment involves equating the quality of life with the value of life, as the CDF has warned against, then, then this is morally problematic insofar as it denies the intrinsic worth of human persons. Second, I would propose that we distinguish between two senses of quality of life, the first of which I'm calling an internal view. So internal view of quality of life how well a person's life is going for him or her based on, for example, physical, psychological, social, economic, and spiritual factors, and how he or she weighs these in relation to each other. Recall Pope St. John Paul II's insistence in Evangelium Vitae that we need to include interpersonal, spiritual, and religious factors in addition to physical factors. Again, to ask the question of this talk, are quality of life judgments unethical? With respect to this internal view of the quality of life, I don't think these kind of judgments are unethical. In fact, it seems appropriate and, and, and important, I think, to, to evaluate how well our own lives are going for us. I think this is important self-knowledge. At the same time, in the Catholic moral tradition, we do have a duty to form our conscience in accord with the tradition. And since we're talking about healthcare decisions, this is sort of the context that we're talking about quality of life judgments in, we also have a duty to inform our consciences with 
relevant information regarding our medical condition, treatment options, et cetera, so that our judgments about our quality of life reflect this formation in the Catholic tradition and also this information about our medical situation. Remember that the AMA Code of Medical Ethics, as well as the ERDs agree that quality of life or well-being is judged by the person, him or herself. So I think that this internal view of quality of life is the most proper sense of that phrase, quality of life. However, certainly the phrase is also used in reference to other people's lives. And so the second sense that I have up here is this external view sense of quality of life, how well others think a person's life is going for him or her, based primarily on observable factors. Are these types of quality of life judgments unethical? I would argue, and it, it seems to me in line with the Catholic tradition, that here the judgments are not inherently unethical either, but I do think we need to keep in mind that these judgments can be wrong, that we cannot fully know the experience of the person. And remember that studies corroborate this as well. And also to go back to one of the points from the Catholic tradition that when we're making quality of life judgments about someone else's life, especially with an eye toward improving their quality of life, that this in fact seems to be a good thing that the Charter for Healthcare Workers, Pope St. John Paul II, the CDF all speak positively of efforts to improve the quality of life of others. Let's go back to Anne with these distinctions in mind. So first, sanctity of life. It's clear that Anne has the same intrinsic worth as every other human person. External view. So this, when I asked that question, I think your kind of initial response probably had more of this external view sense of quality of life. And I think this external view of quality of life, the judgment would be that her quality of life is poor due to her medical conditions, G-tube, frequent hospitalizations, and limited mobility. Note that these are all observable factors. What about her internal view sense of her quality of life? Well, Anne was one of those patients that really just surprised me. So Anne would say very readily that her quality of life was actually good. She was not in denial about her medical condition, about the burdens of her medical condition, but she spoke so happily about how after each hospitalization, she's able to return home. She was able to watch her grandchildren playing, not that she could get down and play with them, but she was able to watch them. That alone brought her great joy. She was able to sit at the dinner table with them. Again, she couldn't eat with them. She has a G2, but she's able to sit there with her, with them. And so Anne actually self-reported that her quality of life was actually quite good. What accounts for the difference between the internal and external? Well, first, Anne has more information about her life than an outsider does, right? She knows that she has grandchildren. She knows that she sits at the dinner table with them. She has this kind of information, right, that, that an outsider wouldn't. But even if it were somebody very close to Anne who knew this kind of information, even if it was somebody who 
knew all of the things that Anne factors into her own judgment about her quality of life, that person might still judge her quality of life differently. They still might judge that her quality of life is poor. Why? Well, because to judge someone's quality of life, we need to know not just all of the different aspects of their life, but we would also need to know how much they value the different aspects and how they weigh these things in relation to each other. For Anne, the ability to watch her grandchildren playing and sit at the dinner table with them was of such great value that it outweighed for her the disvalue of her limitations in a way that maybe for others it wouldn't, um, such that she still says on a whole that her quality of life is good. Note that Anne's values have likely changed over the course of her life, such that she wouldn't always have weighed things this way. And, and here again, studies show that when persons are disabled, for instance, following an injury, they often report poor quality of life at first, but this changes over time as they come to adapt and to accept some of their new limitations. So quality of life, we're weighing different aspects of our lives, but we also are considering how much we value those different aspects, how we weigh them in relation to each other, and all of these things can change over the course of our lives. And certainly I think they do change over the course of all of our lives. At this point, we've distinguished sanctity of life from quality of life and these two different senses of quality of life. Again, it doesn't seem that it's unethical to make quality of life judgments about oneself or others, but I do think that the Catholic tradition points us to some errors related to these judgments that it's important to keep in mind, some of which I've alluded to already. First, as the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, warns against, there's an error of equating the worth of a person with his or her quality of life. It's that error of equating sanctity of life with quality of life. Second would be to judge abortion, euthanasia, etc., as morally permissible for those who won't or who don't have a sufficiently good quality of life. These first two errors pertain whether we're talking about the internal or the external view of quality of life. With respect to the external view of quality of life, we would be wrong to think that we can definitively make an external judgment about a person's quality of life. Remember that studies show that we do not always judge rightly the quality of life of others. So we need to have epistemic humility. We need to keep in mind that we could be wrong. Along these lines, it's important, I think, to ask the person questions to learn more about the various aspects of his or her life so that we can make a more accurate judgment. At the same time, I do think it's important to keep in mind that both the patient and the professional bring important information to the table. Only the patient knows the details of his or her life but the professional too has expertise about the patient's medical condition, risks and side effects of treatments, et cetera. So I do think that there is a place for healthcare professionals to relay their external judgments to the patient. However, it seems to me that it is best to avoid quality of life language here. 
I was just with a group of doctors a few days ago, and the first question I asked them was, how many of you have used the phrase quality of life when speaking to a patient or to families? And every single one of them raised their hand. I do think that it's best to reserve that language of quality of life to when we're talking about the patient's own judgment. So it's fine to use it, of course, as, as a healthcare professional, but I think it'd be best to use it when we're talking about the internal view sense. When we're talking about the external view sense, I think it's actually best just to be more specific. So talk, for instance, specifically about, instead of saying, you know, your, your quality of life is poor right now, talk about how participation in daily functions is limited or how there are many burdens of this particular treatment for the patient. So just be more specific with the language. Do quality of life judgments have a role to play in medical treatment decision-making? I think that they do, but the role is within the context of the Catholic tradition, which also provides a way of discerning when we should accept medical treatment and when it's permissible to withdraw or withhold medical treatment. We'll turn to this next. The relevant error here is that judging is judging a medical treatment should not be pursued merely on the basis that a person does not have a sufficiently good quality of life. Again, we'll come back to this in just a moment, but the last thing I want to mention on this slide, one more error related to many of the errors I've already mentioned, maybe most of them can actually be summed up with this, is the error of not forming one's conscience. Again, we have a duty to form our consciences in accord with Catholic teaching. This includes the teaching about the intrinsic worth of human persons, the sanctity of human life, includes the teaching that it's always wrong directly to take innocent human life. And we also have a duty, as I mentioned earlier, when making medical decisions for ourselves to inform our consciences with the relevant information about med our medical condition, treatment options, benefits and burdens of those treatment options, so that our judgments, including about our own quality of life, re reflect this formation and information. Let's go though now to that distinction between medical treatments that ought to be accepted and medical treatments that can be foregone. The Catholic tradition makes a distinction between what it calls ordinary and extraordinary means of medical treatment. Means, we're talking about treatment. And here this distinction applies whether we're making a distinction to withhold treatment, so not to start a treatment, or to withdraw treatment. So even if a treatment has been started, the question of whether we can stop that treatment permissibly. Ordinary means are also called proportionate means we talk about ordinary means, this is a, a moral sense of treatment. It's a judgment that the treatment is morally obligatory. Extraordinary means in the moral sense, also called proportionate means, sorry, disproportionate means, these are treatments that are morally optional. So this is a moral distinction, not a medical distinction. I think this gets confusing because we also talk about extraordinary means 
in a medical sense sometimes, like if we're talking about maybe experimental treatments or something like this. But here the distinction we're making is a, is a moral distinction. The medical information is relevant, but this is a moral distinction. What makes a treatment morally ordinary means, what makes a treatment morally extraordinary means. The ERDs say this, that proportionate means or ordinary means are those that in the judgment of the patient, again, attention to the judgment of the patient, offer a reasonable hope of benefit and do not entail excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or the community. Ordinary means, reasonable hope of benefit, no excessive burden. I think imposing excessive expense on the family or the community, you could see as an example of an excessive burden. So reasonable hope of benefit, no excessive burden. Disproportionate means are essentially the opposite. Those that in the patient's judgment do not offer a reasonable hope of benefit or entail an excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or the community. Here's a simplified version. Again, ordinary or proportionate means they do two things. They offer a reasonable hope of benefit and they don't entail excessive burden. Extraordinary means only one of the two conditions has to be met. They don't offer a reasonable hope of benefit or they entail an excessive burden. So for extraordinary means, you could have a reasonable hope of benefit, but an excessive burden, and that would be extraordinary. Or you could have uh, no reasonable hope of benefit, but no excessive burden, still extraordinary, right? So either of those conditions being met would make a treatment extraordinary or disproportionate. The language of proportionality comes in as well when you think about, well, what constitutes a reasonable hope? What constitutes an excessive burden? The Catholic tradition here speaks sometimes about weighing benefits and burdens. So when the burdens are proportionate to the benefits, we got proportionate means when they're disproportionate, when the burdens outweigh the benefits. So when the benefits outweigh the burdens, proportionate means when the the burdens outweigh the benefits, disproportionate means. A few quick notes on this distinction. So first, when we're talking about benefits and burdens, we're focused on the benefits and the burdens of the treatment itself, not of the patient's life. Let me give an example to make this distinction a bit clearer. So consider a child who has significant disabilities, who will never walk or talk, and who develops appendicitis and needs surgery. It would be wrong to skip the surgery because the child needs significant care. The need for significant care of this child is not the result of the treatment of the appendectomy. At the same time, it's a broad notion. So it's restricted to benefits and burdens of the particular treatment being considered, but it's broad in the sense that we're considering benefits and the burdens, not just to the patient, but also as we saw in the ERD language, to the family and the community as well, also get factored in in the Catholic tradition. And as we also saw in the ERD language, the benefits and the burdens we're considering are not just medical benefits and burdens, but also the ERD specifically mentioned financial burden, um, but certainly the Catholic tradition as a whole considers psychological, social, spiritual benefits and burdens as well. So it's focused 
on the benefits and the burdens of the particular treatment being considered, but it's broad in the sense that we're considering benefits and burdens to not just the patient, but the family and the community. And it's broad in the sense that we're considering not just medical benefits and burdens. Let me ask this question quickly. To put those up on the slide. Are antibiotics ordinary or extraordinary? What do you think based on what I've said? Antibiotics. Say that again. Ordinary. Ordinary. Why do you say that? Um, because they're so common. Common. Other thoughts on antibiotics? Uh, at least in the first world, they seem um, common, but I imagine like extreme climates or extreme poverty where antibiotics are not readily available. Okay, sure. So a question of availability is certainly relevant here um, and could make a treatment that's otherwise ordinary, extraordinary. I think that's right. Yes. Okay, so for most U.S. citizens. Okay, so seems like the answer so far is most of the time ordinary, but we can imagine there might be circumstances where they're extraordinary. I think that's a pretty good answer. Um, I think that it's going to come down to the particular circumstances. And even within the United States, I think there are times when antibiotics would be extraordinary. So just to give two more obvious examples, I think that if we had an otherwise healthy person develop bacterial pneumonia, more than likely antibiotics in this case would be ordinary means, morally obligatory. Of course, as you mentioned over here, we could imagine that this otherwise healthy person is on some remote island, has no access to medical care. I mean, it's, if it's just not feasible, then that person doesn't still have a moral obligation, right? An example on the other side that I think is more obvious, if you have a patient who's imminently dying from cancer but develops bacterial pneumonia, I don't think we'd have a moral obligation there to give antibiotics. If we think about the benefits and burdens here for the otherwise healthy patient, I think most of the time, the benefits of antibiotics saving this person's life, preventing complications from the pneumonia are going to pretty significantly outweigh the burdens, which certainly there are some burdens of antibiotics, GI issues, this sort of thing. If we think about the patient imminently dying from cancer, we don't really have that reasonable hope of benefits. The patient will likely die before the antibiotics are effective. And the burden, the patient's life certainly might be more burdened in their dying process if their body is trying to process the antibiotic as well. Um, so again, this weighing of the benefits and the burdens. In the first example, it seems that the benefits outweigh the burdens. In the second, it seems that the burdens likely would outweigh the benefits. Where does quality of life fit in? So... Recall that the benefits of the bur and burdens are of the treatment itself, not the patient's life, but certainly aspects of the patient's life must be considered in order to consider what the benefits and burdens of the treatment will be for that patient. And the aspects of the patient's life, I think, certainly include the quality of life of the patient. So I do think it is important to consider how a particular treatment affects or will affect the quality of life of the patient, also the family and the community. 
So my first point here, the question of benefit and burden is, I think, in large part, a question of how a particular treatment affects or will affect the quality of life of a patient. To be clear, again, it's not the case that we can decide not to do a treatment because the patient has a poor quality of life. Rather, the question is whether we can decide not to do a treatment because there is not sufficient benefit, so the treatment doesn't maintain or improve quality of life, in comparison to the burdens, many, many of which would involve detraction from the quality of life of the patient. So here I have what I just put here, but so I think benefits include maintaining or improving quality of life, burdens include detracting from quality of life. If we go back to the example of antibiotics that we just talked about and include this language of quality of life, the benefits in the case of the otherwise healthy patient include treating the pneumonia, restoring the patient's quality of life, right? Burdens are going to be some temporary negative effects on quality of life, stemming from GI issues, this sort of thing. If we consider the other case, the patient imminently dying from cancer, benefit again, we likely wouldn't see a benefit before death in this case. And the burden to put in the language of quality of life would be worsened quality of life in the last hours or days of the patient's life due to the side effects of the antibiotics. Here's what I'll end before opening up to questions. Regardless of a decision to pursue a particular treatment, I think it's important to ask, and I think this can be asked on the healthcare professional side, but also on the family side, caregiver side, friend side as well. How can we improve this person's quality of life? Remember that the Catholic teaching documents encourage this attention to quality of life with, this, with an eye toward improving quality of life. So how can we improve quality of life regardless of how the patient currently judges his or her quality of life? And then along these lines as well, how can we help the person to express or experience his or her intrinsic worth as a person. I have two quotes that I'd like to end with. The first is from the ERDs again, the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Healthcare Services. The care provided assists those in need to experience their own dignity and value. That the care of those who are sick can help a patient and help the patients experience their own dignity and value. Here's another quote along the same lines from Samaritanus Bonus, that document um, 20, from 2020. Whatever their physical or psychological condition, human persons always retain their original dignity as created in the image of God, that human dignity intrinsic worth we spoke of earlier. They can live and grow in the divine splendor because they are called to exist in the image and glory of God. I think this quote is really beautiful and profound that regardless of someone's physical, psychological condition, that they can live and grow in divine splendor. So I'll end there, but 
looking forward to your questions and, and discussion. Yeah, these are tough questions. Um, so I'll go back to my errors slide quickly. Okay. So I think first, maybe I distinguish a couple of things in what you're saying. So there's a few errors there, right? So one is that something like euthanasia in Canada, physician assisted suicide in Oregon, other states in the United States, uh, we're in Ohio, not permissible here yet. Um, so one is that these are even permissible options, even if someone, even in the internal sense, has a, you know, a very poor quality of life. So certainly from the Catholic tradition standpoint, these are never morally permissible options, even if someone, again, in his or her own judgment, thinks that their quality of life is terrible. Um, but then too, and I think you're right, that often both in the United States and in Canada, other countries where physician-assisted suicide and or euthanasia are permissible, the, how do I want to put this? Some of the arguments, at least, maybe not all of them, in favor tie into this quality of life language. But you're right, I think it's not just, I mean, some of the arguments are in that internal view sense, right? If if you don't believe that your quality of life is good, you should have the right to end your life. But I think you're right that it's, it often is more than that, that there's this sometimes unacknowledged, unspoken kind of pressure that you should judge your quality of life to be poor. And I think that affects, I mean, even in a state like Ohio, I'm in North Carolina, also not legalized, physician assisted suicide is not, not legalized in North Carolina. I think there's still this kind of pressure that affects decisions, medical treatment decisions by patients who are patients that most people would say their quality of life is poor. Um, so what do we do? <laughs> Was your question. Um, the document that I mentioned, Samaritana's Bonus, speaks to this question. It's a, it's a really beautiful document in many ways. Um, and it talks about the need to cultivate a sense of the sanctity of life. Kind of in the recognizing and in the midst of these kind of societal pressures. It talks about the need to support healthcare workers who face a lot of these pressures and, and just the difficulty of caring for patients. Um, it talks about the, the need for families and communities. It talks about the need for churches to support patients who have difficult medical conditions this isn't, there's no, there's no one answer, right? There's no easy answer here, but I did appreciate, and so maybe I'm, maybe what I'm doing is I'm recommending this, this document um, as far as giving, giving, I think, good attention to 
to the need for community and for the need to cultivating this sense of the intrinsic worth of human persons in individuals, in families, but also in communities. Um, and this is certainly difficult in the face of other pressures that are working against this. I really could just put it back to all of you as a question, right, in terms of what ideas do you have? How do we cultivate? How do we cultivate that sense of the intrinsic worth? And I really think that that is an important, at least place to start. Um, certainly, like we said, there are a few different errors going on here, but we need to start with that um, because that takes away recourse to something like euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, but it also takes away that pressure for patients who's, who have quality, a quality of life that externally seems poor. It takes away that pressure for them to just forego medical treatments because they know that others just see them as a burden or an expense. We can talk about that ideas you have, or we can think about it, and I could go to another question. I think it's really difficult. Um, I, yeah, I appreciate the different things you mentioned. Um, I think, I mean, one thing that comes to mind for me, and I seems very simple and basic, right? But I, I do think just the witness, one's personal witness, is really important here. And at least we need to start there, right? Um, and that can be, especially those who are in the medical profession, to treat every patient with the same respect. Um, but also can be those outside the medical profession, just how we how we interact with people, how we treat people that we inter that we come across during the day. Other questions? Being a physician, a person, you say they say first do no harm. Mm -hmm. So to begin discussing this in your own way, the whole profession with that. So with compassion to be able to take care of the patient the best they can. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's extraordinary means, sometimes the patient may not think, I don't want to go through that. But if the burden isn't too high and you think that might be helpful for them, that's a hard thing to have a patient understand because ultimately they get to choose mm -hmm. treatment by So it is complicated. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. From a physician standpoint, they make decisions like that every day. And that, uh, you know, I'm not there every day and I wonder if you, if you, if most physicians or most all physicians can do it with empathy and compassion, knowing the situation that those patients are dealing with. Mm -hmm. I think just that word compassion maybe can 
putting drawing together some of your thoughts, both of your thoughts. Compassion comes from uh, calm with passion, suffering. So compassion literally means to suffer with. Um, and I think that has been instructive to me in thinking about how to treat patients, how to interact with people who are suffering. To have compassion is to suffer with them. And so something like physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, doesn't involve our suffering with the patients. Um, and so I think one thing, and this doesn't answer any particular question, but one thing that I think about a lot in these kind of conversations, these kinds of debates is how does physician-assisted euthanasia affect those involved with it on the outside, right? So not the patient, him or herself, but how does it affect us? What kind of person does that lead us to become? I don't think it's, I don't think those are the kind of acts that help us to become more compassionate. I don't think they help us to better suffer with the patient. I think, I mean, just basically all of our acts affect us. They help us to grow in virtue or, um, or they don't, right? That they make us grow in vice. And so these aren't acts, I think, that help us to grow in virtue. They don't help us to grow in this kind of compassion, suffering with the person who is suffering. Is there another question? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for those comments. So just a couple of things that came to mind for me. So so one, I think there's sometimes a, a mistaken thought by both proponents and opponents of physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia that people choose these things because they're afraid of suffering or because they're suffering too much. And what the data coming out of states where physician-assisted suicide is legal shows is that the number one reason they choose physician-assisted suicide is because they don't want to lose control, not because they're afraid of suffering um, or because they think they're suffering too much. And, and so one thing is just, I think, to be aware of that and to even mention that, right, if you're speaking to somebody. And so um, suffering, I mean, not to deny, I mean, I think certainly patients, you know, with many different conditions are, are certainly suffering, so not to deny that, but we do have very good pain control methods. Um, I certainly myself have, have worked with a, an amazing palliative care team, and so I know that there are physicians and, and teams out there that um, can really, really assist these patients and, and families as well um, um, who are going through these kind of difficulties. Um, so it's one thing to mention. Um, the other thing to mention, to go back to your comment about the, the being a vet, so I've had that comment as well, right, that we treat our animals more compassionately. Um, and I think it's a really interesting comment because my first thought is, okay, but who decides when we euthanize our pets, you know, a dog or something, right? 
Um, and so that kind of leads us into some of these slippery slope considerations, which on the one hand, I mean, I mean, the question is where, where is our society heading? Um, and, I, and I think on the one hand, people could argue, well, you know, slippery slope arguments aren't always the strongest, but we do have data coming out of some European countries that they've already shown us where, where it goes from here, um, where we do have um, protocols, laws in place that even those in the U.S. context who do want to legalize physician-assisted suicide, they would find repugnant, um, that they would think these some of the things that are permissible, legal in these other countries, that they would think these are actually very morally problematic. Um, and so that goes to that question, right, of, of who decides here in the U.S. context. Um, we so far want to make sure that it's only the patient, um, but that's not the case in, in some of these European countries. And so I think it's it's something to as well. Two permissible or legal to uh, butt up against one another. And she needs to come back and do a thing. Yeah, thank you for that comment as well. Um, I, I think it is very important, um, and, and I think that goes along with my one of my last points here, right? How can we help the person to express or experience his or her? intrinsic worth as a person, recognizing that that could look very different, right, for different people. Um, and so, I mean, I think, I think from what you're talking about the patient who's suffering, when you're talking about, you know, being in a debate with somebody who disagrees on these kind of issues, I think you're right that in both situations, understanding where the other person is coming from, um, what they're concerned about, um, what's important to them, such that they're coming to the conclusions and the judgments that they are coming to is a really important place to start. Um, I think from what I've heard stories from many, a couple of um, palliative care physicians, I think patients who are in a situation where they might be considering something like physician-assisted suicide, um, in many cases, um, there is a kind of a fear there um, or uh, a loneliness there or something like that. And some something that maybe would be just passed over that we wouldn't notice if we didn't ask those kinds of questions that you're talking about. Um, that maybe what's needed is affirmation and a suffering with um, for those patients. Because um, I think to face that kind of uh, end of life situation, if you have a diagnosis, right, or you know, um, that requires courage. Um, so I can't imagine that there wouldn't be these things like fear uh, involved. Yeah, well, we do have to give up the room, but uh, thank you again so much, Dr. Noy. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. 
Thanks a lot.